there are two more of the supreme emotions. The first two that I talked about are unconditional love and compassion. There are two more. Joy with others or sympathetic joy and equanimity. And altogether, these four are the only kinds of emotion that are worth having, cultivating, and retaining. And of course, within love, there are, and compassion, there are other qualities included, such as helpfulness and care and concern and generosity, which all arise out of the feelings of love and compassion. Joy with others or sympathetic joy has as its far enemy envy and as its near enemy it has hypocrisy joy with others is based on the insight that joy as such is a valuable addition to everything that we bring into the universe quite immaterial who is having the joy so it depends upon our understanding that we are all one manifestation now that takes a bit of doing to understand and then to actually feel it. It's much easier probably to understand it. But to feel it, that needs practice. Again and again, to realize that everything that exists in the universe, particularly people, are all made up out of the same ingredients and all have the same wish and the same difficulties and it doesn't matter who it is and the idea that it should happen to me the good things and the bad things should not happen to me create our differences and they create our dislikes and they create our fears because obviously it's not going to happen we're never going to get all the things we want nor get away from all the things we don't want and if we can't at least take a stab at feeling togetherness we're all going to, always going to feel extremely vulnerable, insecure, threatened and fearful and the more we feel that the less happiness we have in order to get and everybody wants to get there's only one way of doing it and that's to give so if there is anyone that has any joy with whatever it is they're feeling joyful about doesn't matter it's the joy that counts we can then through the understanding of total existence have joy that there is 
joy in the universe. If we should have any envy, why isn't it happened to me? Why is it always happening to somebody else? We are creating negativity not only in our own mind, hatefulness in our own mind, but we're also negating the joy that somebody else is having. Envy is a complete separation between people. Jealousy is part of that. And hypocrisy are our little social lies, those little white lies which people think are justified and justifiable. They aren't anything of the sort. They are an escape mechanism, trying to get away from the truth within oneself and supporting that untruth with words. When we try to get away from the truth in ourselves, namely the truth that we're actually envious and not having joy with another by making polite little noises, we are covering up our inner purity. It's an unfortunate and much practiced social evil. And if we want to be spiritual practitioners and meditators, and one would assume that we want to be, otherwise we wouldn't be here, we wouldn't it wouldn't be to our benefit to go along with that type of thing. Truth and honesty are far more important than little social lies. In fact, it would be quite all right to say to somebody, aren't you lucky? I feel quite envious. At least it's true. And the other person would probably feel quite bolstered by that because it must be wonderful if somebody else is envious. Wouldn't maybe make us look in our own eyes extremely valuable to have such an emotion but at least we're truthful. If we recognize that somebody else is having something wonderful happening to them, and although we don't feel any joy with them, would rather feel downhearted because we haven't got anything like that. And still, make the appropriate noises, nobody's going to believe it anyway. There are very few good liars about. One knows exactly what people are meaning, much beyond the words. The words are concepts. They are the only thing that we have to communicate with. 
But behind the words, it's the world of one's inner being. Very few people that can't hear that. We don't just hear a certain vocabulary. We are not dictionaries. We have strong feelings and the vocabulary that we use may sometimes be in total opposition to what we actually feel but it still comes out so the hypocrisy of congratulating somebody else on their good fortune and not meaning it is totally useless on the contrary it's detrimental to our own inner purity and development If we can't feel it, it's best either to be totally truthful or to say nothing. But if we can't have joy with others, we will often find ourselves in a state of mind which is depressive and feels deprived of the good things in life because nobody has joyful things happening to them constantly especially if we're still relying on the outside world to provide them and haven't yet found the opening where we know that we carry that joy within and can actually experience it. Until that happens through meditation, we rely on the world to provide that joy. And since that is not possible all the time, there will always be that feeling of downheartedness. Many people get up in the morning with that kind of feeling. And if they follow it through with thought, the thought is, oh dear, another day. It's a very common thing. And if we allow this to continue in our thoughts and in our feelings, our whole inner mood will be one of heaviness and dislike which doesn't have a particular focus and if we don't stop it right there it will turn into depression and if it does turn into that it's very difficult to raise it up again to upliftment and elevated consciousness but if we make a point of recognizing when other people are joyful about anything at all and rejoice with them that is much more unlikely to happen our own depressive state 
because if we know other people and everybody does there are far more opportunities for joy because somebody is going to have something nice happening to them and rejoicing with others then creates our joy and if we manage to do that we have a much better chance at getting at that inner joy which is there just waiting to be discovered through meditation everybody's got it everybody would like it very few people have it it's just a matter of giving in and giving up giving in to whatever is the meditation subject and giving up whatever one would like to continue to think about giving up self-assertion giving up this self-concern just letting go it's just waiting everybody everybody can get at it very few people do unfortunately if we have it the inner joy independent of outer conditions of course we will rejoice with others because there's no reason for any envy we've got it anyway if we have already taken a stab at recognizing the unity of existence and have felt something like it through the methods that we have discussed here it too will be much easier because we will recognize the fact that nothing matters to whom it belongs the only thing that matters is that the positive wholesome and helpful is in the universe as long as we are self-concerned only self-concerned and only self-centered life is pretty difficult most people find it very difficult if you walk along any city street and look at the faces of people very difficult life it's very very rare that you see a smile it's a little different when you see people in the country they're not quite as hurried and they do have a little more time to think maybe about something that doesn't just concern their own well-being but most people when you walk by them look as if they're carrying all the duke of the world on their own shoulders and they feel as if they do probably so rejoicing with others is one antidote for that and naturally it's not something that we can force to do but we can practice it all skills are due to practice every emotional skill is due to practice they're not given to us through any outer agency 
we have to practice again and again. And of course, when we feel the slightest success in that practice, it's very encouraging. And just practicing brings success without any doubt. We don't have to become perfect. Perfection is a prerogative of the enlightened one. Very few of those around. So, no need to look for perfection. In fact, it's a very detrimental attitude because it's connected to pride. I ought to be perfect. I must be perfect. It's me that should be perfect. That kind of pride goes before a fall because we won't make it. Arahants are perfect and that is a different category of person. But what we can do is we can practice. Anybody can. Again and again. And when we see our own difficulties and when we see how often we stumble and we accept that we'll be far more tolerant of other people's mistakes too. They stumble just as often as we do. And so we're all stumbling together. Isn't that nice? What's wrong with that? Trying to be more than somebody else or less is nothing but an ego trip. Ego trips never work. They are always miserable for the one who's going on that trip. But to see that it's all one difficulty, always the same. People give it different names, but it's always the same difficulty. Makes it so much easier to bear. Shared sorrow is half sorrow. We've all got the same problems. So why be more or less than anybody else? But when somebody in all that sorrow and all that impermanence and in all that dukkha really has some joy, well, let's be joyful with that person and voice it and feel it and be with, with that person's joy. Just like we can be with a person's sorrow if we have the understanding of our own and have then the ability for real compassion. It means letting go of the barriers that everybody puts around him or herself for supposed protection. Protection from what? Death isn't going to go away just because we put barriers around our heart. So what were we protected from? Nothing. All we are protected from is from our own real deep feelings. And to be protected from those is no great boon. On the contrary, it's miserable. The protection we put around ourselves appears 
to be necessary because there's so much evil in the world. But we only attract what we give out. It's very simple. Whatever we are, that happens to us. There's no need to make any kind of barrier. That brings me to the last of the four supreme motions. And this last one is the highest one. It is a factor of enlightenment. It's one of the factors of meditative absorption. And it is the emotion which makes life totally smooth, equanimity. And its mere enemy is indifference. And it looks the same. But it, inside it feels totally different. Indifference is the protection against one's own emotions which have often played havoc with one and it therefore is like an armor that we put around ourselves so that we can't get at them and we think that nobody else can get at us. And what it feels like is as if one is a bystander and not even interested observer of what goes on in the world. When one has successfully put that armor around oneself, one doesn't feel involved. And when one doesn't feel involved, one hopes one isn't going to be hurt. That hope is very often shattered, but when it is, one reinforces the armor so that it's a little stronger and one thinks next time nobody's going to get at me. Well, what it really is, is that we can't get at anybody because this armor isn't only that somebody can't get in, we can't get out either. So we're stuck in a nice little prison which is most uncomfortable. Indifference does not contain love or compassion. It can become so strong that we can't even recognize our feelings because we don't want it because we are afraid of them. It doesn't have any possibility of feeling connected because we're putting a barrier between ourselves and the rest of the world. It's the kind of thing that feels as if anybody 
that wants to get in to our heart has to have credentials, absolutely impeccable credentials. And if our barrier is strong enough, nobody's got good enough credentials. That's a very sad state of affairs because it's being in solitary and solitary confinement in one's heart. That's an extreme, but varieties of that can often be found. We only let those people in who have the proper credentials, not impeccable, but proper. And that then isn't quite as solitary. But it certainly doesn't make for truth and it doesn't give us the opportunity to see reality and to see ourselves as we really are because we are cut off from something. The uh, far enemy of equanimity is of course anxiety and uh, restlessness but that's easy to see but the near enemy is always called that because it looks similar and has been practiced in the mistaken idea that it is the real thing. Equanimity as the real thing is based on insight. The first insight that we need for that is impermanence. What is there to be upset about. It all changes anyway. What is there to go after, to grasp? It all changes anyway. If we see impermanence quite clearly, it's much easier to have even-mindedness. But even-mindedness, equanimity is not dull. People often think, oh, that must be very dull. I want to have my highs, I'll take my lows in stride. Nothing of the sort. Equanimity is warm and feeling, easy to live with, like a rock in a swirling ocean where everybody is constantly swirling about with the head over the water and then under the water again like a rock where people can find some security and it is not dependent upon outer conditions because it is an inner quality an inner quality which can become imperturbable Imperturbable is one of the words that the Buddha used. It's a bit unusual for us to use, but it's one of the words that the Buddha used in order to show a state of mind which has the highest meditative attainments in its wake. Imperturbability is a recognition 
that happiness, peace and joy are not dependent upon what happens outside of us. They are only dependent upon what happens inside of us. And therefore, equanimity in the face of whatever happens is possible. It never eliminates the warmth of unconditional love. On the contrary, it supports it because it doesn't have the attachment with it. But it doesn't have the passion with it that wants to get. And it doesn't have the rejection with it that wants to get rid of. It is an inner quality of evenness which does not rely on others to provide what one wants. Therefore, independence. Freedom, which is possible on this path, means also independence. Independence emotionally. So, as long as we are dependent on others for their goodwill and their approval, their praise for our happiness, we are like slaves. The others, others' emotions can push us around. Soon as we take note of that, and recognize this fact, it would seem that we would make tracks to change that situation. Who wants to be dependent on other people's emotions? Surely we know already that our own emotions are not reliable. So how can we possibly rely on other people's emotions? And because we can't rely, and we have probably noticed that already, dozens of times, if not hundreds of times, then that indifference armor is the next best thing, we think. But that's, of course, again, going in the wrong direction. The only protection we have are our own inner qualities. The first thing is that we understand impermanence. The second thing is that we understand freedom comes only from independence, being independent of what's happening around us. As long as we are connected with others, our only proper and useful connection is loving them for no reason other than that is the only possible connection between people. No other reason is necessary. And loving them does not mean wanting them, or having them, or keeping them. These are all totally different emotions and actions. Otherwise they'd be using the same words. 
Loving them is just one thing only, a warmth which comes from one's heart and is directed towards other people's hearts. That's all. That we will not always be successful in that is clear. Perfection is not necessarily the goal we're looking for. It's practice that we're looking for. And if we know what to practice, at least we've got something to hang on to. If we don't know what to practice, we'll always be at sea. Equanimity is, of course, imbued with that because it is the smooth and harmonious connection with others. But equanimity is also based on truth. If we can't be truthful to ourselves about ourselves, equanimity will not arise because we're always going to try to make things appear the way they aren't. They're supposed to appear sometimes as if they do what we want them to do, other people or things, situations. And other times we try to make them appear as if they were beautiful when they aren't. The only way that equanimity can actually arise in the heart is when we see things as they are and accept them as they are. In their impermanence, in their unsatisfactoriness, and in their essential substancelessness, because they're always changing. How can anything have a deep and abiding substance if it's constantly changing. If we want to get impermanence a little clearer in our minds, I usually suggest to get out your old photo albums when you get home. The ones that maybe your mothers have kept from the day you were born and then have a look. That's me, huh? And then look in the mirror. Uh Uh-huh, me too. And then look in the photo album again. Ah, me. Me in a million different guises. Not all the photos are there. Let's say maybe only a hundred. But a hundred, so different, you wouldn't know it's you unless somebody told you probably a name written in the photo album. May not even be the same name you've got now. Do the photo album trick. It does wonders for one's understanding of impermanence. Unrecognizable, the little infant on the bare rug looks totally different from the person in the mirror. And yet, it's supposed to be me. Every single moment, it's me. Which one? The one that was, the one that will be, the one that is this second, the one that was yesterday, three weeks ago, three years ago, 30 years ago, which one? Or, alternatively, 5,000 me's, 
or wanting something different because the little baby that was lying on that uh, bearskin rug wanted something else than what you want now. And yet, that's me. A very interesting thing to do. I uh, recommend it highly. And also, it's a wonderful help in not taking oneself quite so seriously. If all these different people are me, well, how come that me is this person right this minute? Look 20 years ahead, it's still you in 20 years, but can't be recognized anymore. Practically everybody can find such a photo album. It's a, a teaching aid, a visual teaching aid, something that's much recommended for all teaching professions. If we can get a hang on to, hang on impermanence, in a way that it becomes clear that everything is a constant flow. Equanimity is easier to achieve. In the beginning, we have to do it with willpower. Every time there are these seesaw effects, we can, through giving ourselves a good pep talk, realize how useless these reactions are. But not through cutting them off or repressing them, but to recognize them and substitute them. Substitution means recognition. Recognition, no blame, change. Our fears, and fear is a human condition, they're due to that non-recognition of unity, of totality, and the non-recognition of impermanence, and the protection syndrome that we have for this supposed self which changes all the time. And one moment we have to protect one thing and another moment another. So it's not very successful, is it, this protection idea? Because the thing that we're protecting changes all the time. So one day we have to protect our hates and another day we have to protect our loves, and another day we have to protect our bodies. It just really doesn't work. And it takes away the energy that we could usefully employ to arouse equanimity. There is a very specific teaching of the Buddha 
to show us the way to equanimity. All the ways are the practice path. They have to be re-aroused through our willpower to do it, through our recognition that we're only hurting ourselves if we don't do it. And eventually, the understanding, the insight, becomes such that we do not have to re-arouse equanimity. It remains a quality. But while we still have to arouse it, we can use what the Buddha called the five noble powers. In Pali, they're called Arya Idis. Arya is noble and Idi is power. It's the same word in Pali as in Sanskrit is Siddhi. And Siddhis is quite a well-known word, probably reached the West by now, because it's considered to be supernatural power. Like being able to lift one's body from here to there. A very popular pastime in ancient and present India. And because the Buddha was a reformer and tried to reform his own religion, just like Jesus was a reformer and tried to reform his own religion, both without success, of course. He said, cities or idis are not that supernatural kind of thing. It's something entirely different. And then he went on to explain that the real noble powers are to see in that which is lovely also the unlovely. To see in that which is not lovely the lovely. To see in both, both. And for the arahant to have no problem even arousing that kind of understanding, always seeing both, and therefore always having equanimity. Now what does it mean to see in the lovely the unlovely? If we are passionately involved with trying to get something, whatever it may be, a person, a thing, maybe a new sports car, or a new boyfriend, whatever it may be, or a new girlfriend, or whatever we're after. To realize that that lovely that we see is impermanent, will change, will not remain with us, cannot remain with us. If it's a thing, it needs repair, it needs cleaning, it needs all sorts of attention and if it's a person exactly the same no different so we try to balance our passionate desire with our mental understanding that it isn't perfection it isn't going to bring us everlasting happiness and isn't going to do for us what we actually want, namely having inner joy and inner peace. It's just 
another burden that we have to deal with. Whatever it may be, anything that we have that we call mine is a burden. Anything, including this body and mind, all is a burden. And I'm sure you must have noticed by now that this body is a burden. One can't help but notice that in a meditation course. Imagine you could sit here without this body and just have the mind meditating. It would still be a burden, but one less, instead of two burdens having one. The same with everybody else's body and mind. They've got exactly the same burdens, and they've got exactly the same problems. So then, if we want somebody passionately enough, we're going to load onto ourselves not one dukkha that we have already, but the second dukkha of the other person. And then we've got two dukkhas together. And if we see something that we find extremely unlovely, repulsive, in a person, in a thing, in a situation, whatever it may be, recognizing in it also that which is lovely. It can be a teaching situation. It can be, if it's in another person, the good qualities which we, direct, which we recognize. It can be the abilities of another person. It can be their generosity. Whatever it is, we can think, think and see in another person. And in a situation which we find very hard to bear, we may recognize the fact that it teaches us endurance, that it teaches us patience. Whatever it is, to see the lovely in and the non-lovely, in that which we find repulsive and in that which we find not repulsive. Always to see both to right away so that we don't even get tempted into hate or greed. Temptation is all around us, constantly. Temptation does not have to be high life. Temptation is anything that gets us into disliking or liking, where our equanimity, our warm inner feeling of even-mindedness and even-heartedness is disturbed. And then the last one, the fifth one, is for the Arahant. He doesn't have to start thinking, is this nice or is this not nice? He can see immediately that there's nothing in the world that is repulsive enough to worry about or attractive enough to want to have. Everything constantly changes. Whatever has arisen has to cease. There is no way out of that. Whatever is born must die. That's why Nibbana is called the unborn and the undying. It's the only mental concomitant, Nibbana, which has absolutely no disturbance in it. 
But until we get there, we've got to do something about that. And these five noble powers would probably be the first two, the most important ones for us. They are an actual practice of seeing our reactions and becoming aware that if they go to extremes on either side, they bode no good. Difficulties ahead. We should see a red warning light. And besides, the balance in oneself is the only way to peacefulness. And peacefulness is the only way to meditation. And meditation, proper meditation, is the only way to an elevated consciousness. And an elevated consciousness is the only way to insight. Without equanimity, which we would like to get through meditation, but which we will have to have in order to meditate, we really can't practice properly. So it is the first order of practice, recognizing impermanence in everything. Naturally, we will need reminders all the time. The world doesn't do that. On the contrary, it tries to tempt us into wanting more and also into rejecting. There's always that kind of feeling everywhere. The economy wants us to want more and the newspapers and the media always have somebody that we should reject. We shouldn't believe all that. We should recognize our own inner life and not go along with that what is being offered because it is also based on hate and greed. It's quite possible if we have enough intelligence, and I'm sure we do, to be an independent thinker. We don't have to accept what is being thought for us. And that independence of thinking makes it possible to be independent also in feeling. Equanimity, the highest of emotions, which says quite clearly that emotion is not something that is going jumping up and down, but it is the inner feeling. Emotions are inner feelings and not something which has the connotation of passion with it. The meditation practice brings it with it. And I will start explaining that tomorrow, how the meditation practice, when it comes to fruition, brings these factors with it as a natural result. But that does not relieve us from practicing it in daily life. The more we know what's going on within us, the more we have equanimity because we realize it's all one and the same.
that's enough for tonight. If you have questions, it's the time to ask them. Total equanimity, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> The continuity is that which covers over the impermanence. Because we like to put our attention on continuity rather than on impermanence. Put your attention on impermanence and you'll see it quite clearly. Continuity is based on memory. And memory is very, very faulty in human beings. And ask any traffic policeman. And he gets six witnesses to a traffic accident, he gets seven opinions. Memory is very faulty, but this continuity is based on memory. Really? <laughs> what did you think this morning at ten past six? <laughs> same me that was in your diary a few years back. Well, those are written words, aren't they? Can you, can you have the same thought? You can. How do you do that? Can you have the same thought that you had a moment ago? You have written down something. That's the only thing that's left of that feeling. You haven't got that feeling you had then. You've got something written down there. Well, look, I would like to suggest to you the following. Um, tomorrow or tonight, make a note of every thought you have. Write it down. Write every thought you have down for half an hour and then just check up whether you can keep any of them or do it for five minutes and see whether you can keep any of those. And then after that you've done that, then write down every feeling that you have for the next five minutes and then see whether you can keep those, whether you can actually uh, the have that feeling that you had for that moment 
the next moment. Whether it's emotion or sensation doesn't matter. Write it down and see. What you find in your diary is that you have still the same reactions that you had then. <laughs> Quite possible. But you can't have that particular feeling that you have this minute. It's impossible. Write it down. For five minutes at a time, just for five minutes, write down the thought, and then for five minutes, write down your feeling. And then see whether you can have it. I think that's exactly what the Buddha said. He said, we're always trying to make permanent what is so obviously impermanent. We are always looking at that which would make it a solid thing. Can you imagine living for 500 years? Would you like to? No. Okay, find it. Find the essence. Let me know about it. Okay? Find it. Find it and uh, live it. Live the essence for one minute and then let me know about it. Yes. Your own neurosis. Oh, I hope they do change. You mean you want to keep them? Sorry. Well, I, uh, <laughs> it's just quite possible, but if you practice, it will change. <laughs> you will, uh, you may have the same reactions, yes. But you see, that's not, when you feel angry this moment, right? Let's assume you feel angry this moment because you're reacting to something you don't like, okay? But the next moment, that's not true anymore. Tomorrow you may feel angry again. But that doesn't mean you've been keeping this. Or you may be feeling angry five moments. But that's it. The sixth moment is gone. Finished. Or the tenth moment. And then tomorrow again, yes, you get angry again. Because there is a certain continuity, the mind is putting itself on that rather than seeing how it arises and ceases. All you have to do is watch your own meditation. If you were to watch your own meditation, you would know immediately that no thought remains. It comes back, but it can't remain. And out of those millions and billions of thoughts, which one is me and which one is mine? And the essence will have to live it for a moment in order to know it. It's possible to search for it. Find it. See, it's, uh, it, it is the, the most difficult aspect of the teaching, and because of that, it ha it's fraught with difficulty, and the difficulty arises because I am me. And I don't want to lose me, because if I lose me, 
the universe must stop mocking it. I'm the center of it. So if I lose me, what is there left? It's a very interesting proposition, but I don't expect it to uh, come to any uh, final conclusions on it. So what is there left? Yeah, what is there left? <laughs> 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 suggesting losing the me, I'm not suggesting losing the me, not at all. I'm suggesting losing the illusion. No, 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 you're misunderstanding <laughs> completely. <laughs> so then I, when you say suggest that I'm suggesting to losing the me, it's a wrong um, way of wording the Buddha's teaching, and that's why I'm saying I'm not suggesting losing the me, I'm suggesting losing the illusion that there is a me. Okay? I have to say that because otherwise I'm teaching incorrectly. You're not losing a thing other than an illusion. It's, uh, in uh, Hindu tradition it's called Maya. Maybe you've heard the word. It's a very good, written in many of the books. M-A-Y-A, Maya, illusion. But it's only what we think. If we think differently, and then, of course, feel that too. It's a totally different proposition. The world looks entirely different. And it doesn't present any problems. It can't, because it's constantly changing. No way it can present a problem. So we are, um, in that manner, um, creating, of course, our own dukkha, because we're hanging on to it. But the, the main focus of what I'm talking about at this point is the emotion of equanimity, which is, of course, greatly helped if one can see that there isn't a personal me. But even without seeing that, one can practice and that's what it's all about, practice. Because it's uh, a logical conclusion that getting upset isn't a very helpful um, way of living, nor is it very helpful to live with a great deal of passion, of wanting, and a great deal of resentment. It's very difficult to live like that. In fact, the first one, the um, the passion of wanting makes life very, it makes, there's always a promise that something will happen, but it makes life disappointing. And the second one, the uh, rejection and resistance, is uh, like a stumbling block, it's a hardness that one stumbles over and against all the time. The only way to live competitively is to be giving, giving in, giving up, smoothly flowing. And for that one needs equanimity. So the practice of that is extremely important. And whether one has any understanding of me or not me, it doesn't really matter at this point. I've only thrown it in for next. <laughs>
Anything else? Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Fill your heart with forgiveness for yourself, for anything that you have been <coughs> dissatisfied with in your life. Forgive yourself for any mistake. For any time when you've been less than perfect, when you were disappointed in yourself, Forgive yourself for all that. They're all learning experiences. It can all be done differently next time. If you don't forgive yourself for them, you will carry them around with you, the mistakes. When you forgive yourself, you can let go of them. Let them float away. your attention on the person nearest you in this room and forgive that person for anything that you may have felt was less than perfect. Fill that person with your forgiveness so that he or she can also forgive him or herself. So that you feel totally at ease with that person, completely connected, not having any resistance or rejection. And then forgive everyone here or anything that you may have thought or felt was not perfect in anyone. Total forgiveness and acceptance go together. Fill everyone with your forgiveness and your acceptance. Not separating yourself from anyone. Being connected 
forgive your parents for anything that you feel they may have done badly, recognizing the difficulty. Fill them with your forgiveness and your acceptance. Embrace them. Being totally at ease with them. Forgive those people who are nearest and dearest to you for anything that may have disturbed you, that you may not have approved of. Forgive them completely, knowing the difficulties in every human being. Accept them exactly the way they are, filling them with your forgiveness, embracing them with your acceptance, feeling totally united. Think of all your good friends. Fill them with your forgiveness. Embrace them with your acceptance. So that there's not the slightest shadow of rejection or resistance. Feel your togetherness with them by having totally accepted them. Think of the people you meet in your daily life. Forgive them for anything that you may have objected to. Accept them completely. Fill them with forgiveness and acceptance. Feeling one with them.
think of anyone with whom you have difficulties and forgive that person completely. Accept him or her, leaving no shadows. And with that forgiveness, feel the connection, the interconnectedness. your heart with forgiveness and let it flow over and spread out to everyone and anyone that you can think of. Wherever you have felt there was evil, where you were rejecting Objecting. Fill it all with your forgiveness. Open your heart so wide. Make the forgiveness so large that many people can be part of it. Let as many human beings enter into your forgiving heart as possible. Forgiveness is also accepting. and embracing. Now put your attention back on yourself and feel the joy and the ease of having forgiven yourself. and accepted yourself just the way you are and content with that willing to grow forgiveness soft and warm and embracing feel embedded in that
may beings everywhere forgive each other.